everyone. Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan, uh, here as always with my friend and yours, Kale Brooks. Kale, uh, how are you? What's new? I'm good. Uh, it's uh, another glorious day in our country where everything is going just the way the left wants it. Uh, uh, there, No, it's not. But uh, I'm good, at least. So I hope that I hope people appreciate that. How are you doing, Jen? <sighs> Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, Looking forward to today's show. Uh, Just very quickly before we dive in, we will be talking to Labor Paul about the upcoming UPS contract fight and what the Teamsters are doing to prepare for that. We'll be talking to Bronco Marchetich about the Democrats, uh, as usual, messing up, in this case, messing up the January 6th hearings and really not doing a thing to actually safeguard democracy. And we'll be talking to our friend Matt Huber about the uh, climate package that has just come out, uh, his thoughts on that, and uh, basically what he sees as sort of the prospects for um, transformative climate action and a Green New Deal in this country. Uh, so please stay tuned for all of that. Uh, first, though, Kale, what's on your mind? Yeah, well, so I'm sure a lot of people know that the big news last week, obviously, undoubtedly, was the announcement that Senator Manchin and Senator Schumer have a potentially viable infrastructure bill, at least at the time of recording this, it's potentially viable. Hopefully, uh, it still is, but um, we'll get we'll get to that more with Matt Huber later. But just before that actually happened, uh, both the House and the Senate passed uh, what's called the Chips and Science Act, which was introduced to deal with the microchip and semiconductor shortage that you might be aware of. Um, obviously, microchips and semiconductors are a big part of cell phone production, of car production, of many medical devices. Um, and it's been a large part of the supply chain issues that we've been dealing with for the last few years. Um, so the bill that was just passed allocates tens of billions of dollars towards domestic research and development uh, costs for companies like Intel and Samsung and Texas Instruments, among others. Uh, but the notable part of, of this is that the federal government is basically just going to be handing over this money with no conditions, uh, meaning that we're going to be footing the bill. This is if Biden passes this. We're going to foot the bill for these businesses' costs without really securing any conditions that might be beneficial to working people or to domestic growth broadly. Um, And this was actually where uh, Bernie Sanders objected to the bill. He was one of the people who voted no on it. Um, And he put out a statement last month that kind of Uh, sums up uh, his uh, objection to the bill. So he writes, uh, I'm opposed to this legislation in any form until the following conditions are met. Companies must agree to issue warrants or equity stakes to the federal government. They must commit to not buying back their own stock, outsourcing American jobs overseas, or repealing existing collective bargaining agreements, and they must remain neutral in any union organizing efforts. The demands I'm making are not radical. They are the same conditions that were introduced in the CARES Act, which passed the Senate 96 to 0. And as many of you probably also remember, uh, many of the companies that benefited from the CARES Act did not actually hold to some of the stipulations that were put in place, notably the airline industry, and um, would be great if we actually tried to hold them to account. But um, as friend of another friend of the show, we got a lot of friends around here, but as friend of the show, Matt Brunig highlighted in what's now a deleted tweet, and I can't put it on screen, I would have, just uh, pretend there's a Matt Brunig tweet on screen right now, 
um, that it's actually quite extraordinary and unique that American industrial policy doesn't actually make demands on or attach strings to the money that we hand out to businesses. Yeah. Um, that typically both with social democratic uh, models and as well as like developmental economic models, um, typically they involve the state actually disciplining the business community. Yeah. Uh, meaning that like, you know, they're encouraging growth. They want to encourage profitability among their companies, but at the same time, they end up pushing for greater rights and protections for workers, or just like minimally for domestic value-added production. Like that, the actual like productivity gains are occurring in the country that this money is being doled out. Um, but in neoliberalism, as we all know, the state has basically aided and abetted capitalists making a profit at the expense of nearly everyone and everything else. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, our modern capitalist class is cross-national, and uh, they put profits even ahead of their national location. Yeah. Um, and this is actually the thing I want to get to in the Sanders clip, and then we can kind of reflect on what this all means. But um, this is part of what uh, Senator Sanders was highlighting uh, in from the Senate floor. A little over a week ago, the CEO of Intel, a gentleman named Pat Gelsinger, who earns something like 100 and $79 million a year in compensation, not a bad salary. Mr. Gelsinger did an interview on CNBC's Squawk Box program. And I think to listen to that interview tells us everything we need to know about oligarchy and arrogance and the state of American politics. My message to uh, our congressional leaders is, hey, if I'm not done with the job, I don't get to go home. Neither should you. Do not go home for August recess until you have passed the CHIPS Act, because I and others in the industry will make investment decisions. And do you want those investments in the U.S.? Or are we simply not competitive in this to do them here? And we need to go to Europe or Asia for those. Get the job done. Do not go home for August recess without getting these bills passed. In other words... What he is telling you point blank is who is the puppet and who is the puppeteer. Don't go home this August until you give us $176 billion because if you do, you don't do that, we're going to go to Asia and we're going to go to Europe. That's the state of American politics. The CEO of Intel is saying that if you don't give his industry a $76 billion blank check and his particular company up to $30 billion, that despite, no doubt, their profound love for America, I'm sure they got big American flags all over the place, and their patriotism, and their concern for the needs of the military and the uh, healthcare industry, which in fact needs these sophisticated chips, that if we do not give them this bribe, despite their love of America and their concern about our national defense, you heard Senator Cornyn talking about national defense, and he's right, this is a national defense issue, but despite all of that and all of their love for America, they're willing to go to Asia and go to Europe. Madam President, as I said last week, I am thankfully not a lawyer. Uh, But that sure sounds like extortion to me. 
Bernie at his best. Uh, I don't disagree with anything that he said there, obviously. Um, It will surprise nobody to know that I'm very much with Bernie on this. And I think what he points out there in that video is really important. Uh, It's the fact that capital has the upper hand and nothing in this bill does anything to change that dynamic whatsoever. And I, I, I do want to quickly say, and actually Bernie has admitted this as well, that we actually do need to reinvest in domestic manufacturing. We do need a strong industrial policy. Uh, We do need to reshore the production of not just semiconductors, uh, but plenty of other things. That's all well and good. But the problem is when, again, you decide to make these investments with no guardrails, I think that's the language Bernie has been using, no guardrails that ensure worker protections or ensure any kind of check on the power of capital. What you're basically doing is not just corporate welfare, not just giving these companies a blank check, although that is true, but you are basically saying that you expect these companies to do the right thing with the money that they've been given. You expect them to reinvest uh, their profits in their workers, in production, in technology. And guess what? That is the bargain that government has been making with capital for the last 30 to 40 years. And how has that turned out? It hasn't. We have a term for this already. It's trickle down economics uh, and it doesn't work. Yeah, this is and it's like astounding because this is the exact same thing that's happened, like you're saying, every single time where like the new argument and we're going to talk about this with Matt Huber in a little bit, like you just give uh, the capitalists, you give business a bunch of money and you say, please invest. We need investment to go up. Please just do the investment. And they don't like that. They've been pocketing a lot of this, that like this is like the Trump tax cuts. This is it's all the same thing. It's the Bush tax cuts. Yeah, it's just more and more of the same thing. And it's like you're saying, it largely has to just do with class power. The fact that like the the, the capitalists, the ruling class in this country uh, can say they can make the uh, the, the threat to, to government that like we're going to put production where we need to put production that's going to be the lowest cost and give us the highest profit. And either you play ball with us or fuck you. Mm-hmm. And like that's not like we need a different answer to that like that's yeah. like we need either public investment we need to like massively expand what the state is actually producing to actually generate growth and and uh higher wages and and um productivity here that like you know leads to a, a healthier economy overall to the benefit of working people especially um because capitalists are unwilling they, like aside from the fact that like there's yes of course like they're just out for profits like they're not even interested in domestic growth like right. they're they're willing to sacrifice everyone here mm-hmm. and the other point i just want to make very quickly is like this isn't like you know uh an american workers versus the global south workers situation or something mm-hmm. because capitalists are screwing everybody simultaneously right now across yeah. the board like yeah. it's they're doing this not to you know there's not nothing generous it's not even like in an accidental outcome of like you know benefiting you know workers that are being paid like less than starvation wages mm-hmm. in you know east asia or something mm-hmm. like this is like across the board them getting what they want at all of our expenses right right 100 percent um, yeah, I mean, on that point, I, I also just want to add, you know, I think that I think that it is true that Democrats and actually like a lot of leftists and progressives have 
uh, not paid as much attention as they maybe should have to things like uh, investing in domestic manufacturing. Or, you know, I know that there is hesitancy or even resistance in many quarters of the left to uh, embrace any kind of protectionism for fear that it comes off as nationalistic or xenophobic or could like open the door to that. Right. Um, I don't agree with that. Uh, I think that there is definitely I think that, you know, as I've been saying, talking about domestic manufacturing and industrial policy and, you know, things like uh, trade and tariffs and stuff. I think that that's something that the left should be should be taking very seriously. Now, that said, uh, you can't just, you know, reproduce the same uh, kind of uh, neoliberal trickle down uh, structure and then like try to dress it up with the word domestic manufacturing, you know, right. or I mean, obviously, like people are going to try. Um, but I I don't know, something to think about. Yeah. Again, this was like there there probably will be some new investment because yeah. of this bill, but like none of it's guaranteed because the right. state completely just took responsibility out of its hands. There like you we need these kinds of strings attached to, to the money that we dole out. Otherwise, like we're just again, the state is just aiding and abetting right. capital and whatever they want. Right. So what's going to happen? I mean, obviously, we can't say, uh, but I, I think that there's a pretty good reason why Bernie Sanders, who has always been very good on this issue, uh, objected to this bill, uh, despite, you know, all of the Democrats he caucuses with uh, basically support in the Senate supporting the bill. Uh, lots of Republicans as well. Um, we'll see. But I, I kind of feel like history might prove Bernie right yet again. Just one more time. At least. Just, just, just one last time. Yeah. All right, right. should we dive into the rest of the show? Let's do it. All right, well, I am now here with total stranger Paul Prescott for a special Labor Paul update. We will be talking about the upcoming UPS contract fight and the Teamsters and everything that's going on with that. Um, But first, Paul, hello. Good to see you. It's great to be back. So as I mentioned, we're going to be diving into all things UPS and Teamsters. Um, But first, I want to start with a kind of general question about, I suppose, the state of delivery and logistics right now. Um, That's that's obviously, you know, a huge part of what the Teamsters and UPS do. Uh, And like I said, we'll be getting to that. Uh, But I I just saw some news that uh, USPS is uh, they they just announced that they might be looking to reduce their workforce by 50,000 workers. Uh, They say that they need to do this, quote, just to break even. Right. And this was really interesting to me because as you talked about uh, many times when you were on the show throughout the pandemic, we've been hearing all of this rhetoric that essential workers are or I'm sorry, that delivery workers are essential. Right. And I don't think that anybody can contest that throughout the course of the pandemic. You know, they were the ones that kept things moving. They were the ones that delivered us all of our, you know, horrible little packages from Amazon or whatever. Uh, And so I guess the question for you is what is going on in uh, American delivery and logistics right now? How can it be the case that we are so heavily dependent on delivery workers but at the same time, they're being forced to work under uh, more difficult conditions uh, for, you know, less pay or for stagnant pay. And in the case of USPS, even being downsized, what is going on? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting moment in logistics. You know, this is one of the few industries that's actually growing in the United States. You know, we we don't necessarily make a lot of things in this country anymore, but we move a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we do make stuff, a lot of it's heavily automated, but you know, logistics, there's still a point where you need humans to drive the cars, the trucks, you need humans to actually be delivering these packages, to be storing these packages in, in warehousing. So 
logistics is a growing industry in the U.S. economy, and, and it's really significant. Um, and I think, you know, this was all accelerated because of COVID-19. Um, you know, not necessarily with the postal service per se, but companies like UPS, Amazon, I mean, probably all of us ordered way more stuff online uh, since COVID. And now that we're in that mode, we're probably just ordering more and more um, anyway. So, you know, and I think these companies, look, I mean, they're going to take advantage when they can, unless there's a, a counter for it. So they're making profits like crazy. You know, they are um, increasingly adopting lean production methods, you know, doing more with less, um, squeezing more and more out of every single worker. They made out like bandits during COVID, you know, already really profitable companies like Amazon, like UPS, um, you know, double, triple their profits uh, since COVID-19. And I think they're just taking this moment um, to, to press the advantage further until there's a counterweight. And with the Postal Service, it's an interesting moment because um, something kind of significant happened recently. I feel like it should have gotten more fanfare, but I'm just a nerd about the USPS, so maybe that's just me. But, you know, Biden actually signed a law that ended the pre-funding mandate for the Postal Service, where they had to fund 60 years in advance the, the pensions and retirement of their workers, um, which, you know, was a large part of why they were struggling financially. So that is actually over um, going forward. But, you know, this new Postmaster General, um, Louis DeJoy, um, who's a right winger, uh, has a background as a, you know, uh, in the logistics industry, as someone that is anti-union and, and subcontracting. Um, you know, he still has this 10-year plan for the Postal Service, um, which is essentially bringing lean production to the Postal Service, um, cutting post office hours, cutting routes, um, cutting service, and all the same, because they're still looking at it as the mindset of running this like a business. Um, and mm -hmm. I think they're going to use any excuse to do that. And even with the pre-funding mandate gone, they're still going to do this. And instead of thinking more ambitiously, like the American Postal Workers Union pushing for postal banking, you know, offer banking services at post offices as a way to raise revenue, offering other services, they're taking the approach of let's try to cut as much as possible. So let's turn to UPS now. Uh, let's let's turn our attention to the private sector. Obviously, this week, the Teamsters kicked off a national week of action, which is what you're on to talk about. Um this is on this is unfolding because the current UPS uh, union contract with the Teamsters will expire basically a year from now. Uh, talk a little bit about that. What exactly is at stake here? Why are the Teamsters rolling out this you know week of action? Uh, what's going to happen? And maybe to put it bluntly, how likely is a strike next year? <laughs> yeah, that's that's the big question. Well, I mean, this is a huge uh, moment. So. UPS, United Parcel Service, is the largest unionized private sector employer in this country. So over 350,000 Teamsters uh, working at UPS. You know, these are people that are in sorting centers, sorting packages, loading them on the trucks. Your package car driver that you see probably on a daily basis. Feeder drivers um, driving across the country um, delivering packages. Um, so this contract expires in one year. And I think this could really set the tone for workers across the country. Um, the last time there was a strike at UPS was 1997. So this week is not just kicking off this um, uh, current contract fight. It's also the 25th anniversary of the 97 UPS strike, which um, you know I think many would argue was the last most recent um, successful nationwide private sector strike um, that really in the 90s actually captured the imagination a working people with their slogan, part-time America won't work. Um, mm -hmm. A defining issue was the creation of more 
good full-time jobs. And that issue is still live with us today. You know, UPS increasingly relies on their part-time workforce um, who are in the union, but are essentially on a different tiered wage structure, don't have the same benefits. And so this, you know, contract fight is about raising the standards for these part-timers, creating more full-time jobs, eliminating two-tier, which crept into the last contract. And this is just bigger than uh, just UPS. You know, this could set the tone across the country. We're in this moment where we've seen an uptick in work and militancy, both among non-union workers organizing and unionized workers. Um, if we remember, think back to Striketober, which I know is now almost a year ago, but a lot of that stuff was ferment within existing unions, you know, rank and filers rejecting bad contracts, voting, you know, to strike. And so this is kind of a continuation of that. And we're in this moment where, you know, with inflation going off the rails, the Federal Reserve essentially uh, admitting that they want to force a recession, they want to force down demand of working people. This fight will be a big signal to say whether we're going to say, you know, this is uh, we accept that inflation is workers fault or, you know, we're going to still demand more um, because they would like nothing more to use this inflation crisis as an excuse to limit demands and force down um, bad contracts. And I think many other working people are going to look at this fight. You know, we think about um, Amazon. There's a lot of excitement around that right now. We know the Teamsters are looking at Amazon. And I think the outcome of this fight, there's a really you know, public, um, big confrontation at UPS that is successful, um, Amazon workers are going to see that. And I think that could help spur more organizing. We often see that when workers are victorious in a big public way, and this would be, again, a national um, victory if it happens, that is can help stimulate workers across the country. Um, so, you know, it's a very good sign, I think, that the union is starting a year out. You know, they're getting ready now. They're, you know, starting to make plans around saving up for a potential um, strike fund. They are, you know, getting proposals um, among ranking filers for what they want to see in the contract. They're mobilizing across the country. And so this is a good sign that they are prepared for a fight. And so, you know, will there be a strike? I, I don't know. That's going to be up to what, what these workers want to do. Um, I, you know, I do think that they are preparing in a way like we haven't seen since 1997, which mm-hmm. was the last strike. And we have you know, a new reform leadership in power at the national level. We have many locals also with reformers in office. So I think this is all a good sign um, that we are going to be, you know, prepared in a good way for this. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, some of the issues besides just full-time jobs, you know, um, besides the basic stuff around pay. And again, think about in this moment, a 4% wage increase is not going to cut it in this inflationary moment. So, you know, those wage demands need to be on the table, especially for part-timers who are grossly underpaid, but also stuff around quality of life and safety. You know, they are installing cameras inside most trucks now to monitor every move of the drivers, you know, to make sure they're delivering as fast as possible, which is also a safety issue. You know, these cameras actually talk to you. In the truck. And so while you're trying to drive, trying to do all this stuff, you know, this camera is just barking at you. So that is a big issue as well, you know, that that these workers, you know, uh, deserve to not be surveilled every Mm -hmm. second of the day. I, you know, 
that that brings up a question about UPS, the company, uh, because as as you mentioned uh, earlier, they posted record profits during the pandemic. Do you see uh, do you see maybe a chance that in this moment of, as you said, sort of increased worker militancy and, you know, new leadership with the Teamsters and kind of the Teamsters kicking off this campaign a year early? Do you see hope that UPS as a company will, uh, I don't know, come to the negotiating table in better faith or, you know, actually uh, uh, give in or, you know, uh, actually uh, accept some of these workers demands? Um, well, I don't have faith that they'll come in good faith, but um, I do have hope that they will be forced to take this yeah. seriously and, and give in. Um, I mean, like you mentioned, they, it just came out that in the second quarter of 2022, UPS made over $3 billion. So that's over a billion dollars per month that yeah. they are making. So they, they totally have the money to settle these demands, especially the creation of full-time jobs. You know, it's also been very common. A lot of drivers are essentially forced to work six days a week, um, forced overtime because the company simply refuses to hire more full-time drivers. They just want to yeah. squeeze as much as they can out of the existing workers. You know, you don't want to hire someone else. You have to now pay their pension and their health benefits. So there, you know, there are some companies out there, maybe smaller companies could maybe have a valid excuse there. That is absolutely not going to happen. That's not, yeah. not a real excuse with UPS. Um, so again, I don't, I don't have hope that they will do anything they're not forced to do. So that is why, you know, it's really on us and on these workers to force them. And, you know, you can be sure that this whole week, you know, this is a week of action across the country. I'm sure UPS is going to look very closely. You know, they see, um, that they're not out in force. Um, they might, you know, think they have better chances to resist these demands. If they see a strong show of force, and also, if they see public support, you know, for those mm -hmm. of you, most of you who are not in the team series who are watching, you know, the public support is going to be key. And that was actually a big factor in 1997. You know, we talk on this show a lot about how unions can get public support. It's a lot easier, I think, in the public sector. You know, you're providing a service the public relies on, you know, like a teacher making the argument around class size. But it is possible in the private sector. And they proved that in 1997. I mean, their message about one full-time job should be enough resonated. Most people, you know, know their local UPS delivery person, you know, mm -hmm. uh, especially if you order a lot from UPS or from, you know, other stores that UPS delivers for. Um, people know their, their package car drivers. So I think there's a lot of potential to get public support. We're also in a moment where there's a very pro-union sentiment across the country. Um, so I think this is the moment to, to wage a big national contract fight around against one of the biggest companies and get the public on our side. And I think for those who are on the left or in organizations, there is a great opportunity to be a part of a public campaign in support of these workers. So um, I, I want to ask you now about the current Teamsters leadership, uh, because, of course, you know, last year, the big Teamster news, and we talked about this on the show, was that they elected a new general president, Sean O'Brien. He's become a pretty high profile uh, face of the labor movement. Uh, I, I'm curious to hear how you think this new leadership will affect the upcoming contract negotiations, because I know that, you know, while the Teamsters were sort of having their um, internal uh, internal campaigns and internal debates about who the next president should be the UPS contract fight was something that uh, that that came to the fore. Um, so what's what's going on there? Yeah, I think you know this will have a big effect in setting the tone, and and people should know you know this leadership is part a product of a coalition, a Teamsters United coalition that in includes you know groups caucuses like Teamsters for a Democratic Union, 
that has, has brought this coalition into power. And already we're seeing the way they um, are setting expectations is different. And yes, these are just words, but Sean O'Brien has been very clear, you know, from the beginning that, you know, we should prepare for a potential strike. We're, mm-hmm. we're going to be ready for this. Um, it, you know, he set the demands very clear about what we are not willing to, to settle without. Um, and I think that's made a, a big impact on the membership. And I think even something like this, we give action again a year in advance is a very good thing for setting the tone. Um, and, you know, the way that this coalition is being kept together, um, you know, the, to keep it short, it's a very complicated situation. You know, within the union, things are fluid, but this coalition is being kept together and they're sending a really clear um, early signal that we're taking this seriously. You know, we're, we're not going to go down without a big fight. Um, so I think, you know, this is going to, um, this has a, has, has a, a good sign for the future. And I think the the benefit too is like, this is not just about this national leadership, you know, with organizations like Teamsters for a Democratic Union are very active on the local union level because there's mm-hmm. only so much uh, Sean O'Brien can do f- from the top. But, we, yeah. you know, there is a strong infrastructure, I think, that's been built and is still being built in this union at the local level to, to carry out these campaigns. And so that's a good sign. All right. Well, uh, all, all good signs for the upcoming UPS contract fight. Uh, we will, of course, keep you posted. We will have Labor Paul back to share any new updates. Uh, Paul, any last thoughts on uh, just this week of action and uh, what you think is on the horizon in terms of this contract fight? Yeah, well, I mean, I'd say, you know, if you're out there, you know, Try, try to look into in your local area. I mean, UPS is everywhere to see if, if you, uh, the Teamsters local in your area is doing uh, an action and, you know, if you want to show up and support. And lastly, I mean, I'll just reiterate how important this is. I don't think it, it, you don't have to be an economics professor to know. I mean, if there is a strike at UPS, what that would do to this economy. I think every single day, I mean, UPS is responsible for around like 5% of the country's GDP every single day. Um, so this would be a huge huge development in the labor movement in this country. And again, even more importantly, I think it would be a big signal to the future for unorganized workers in the logistics industry, which again is, is growing as a huge sector in, uh, in this economy. This would be a signal that, you know, it's their time now to organize. So this is a huge fight that people should keep their eye on. All right. To be continued. Uh, Paul, thank you very much. Good to see you as always. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right, so we will be back in a minute with Bronco Marchatich, but first, a quick note from our sponsor, Verso Books. Join the Verso Book Club and support the future of radical publishing. Subscribers get every book that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website for as long as you're a subscriber. Join in August and get your first month free. This month's selections are... Decolonial Marxism, Essays from the Pan-African Revolution by Walter Rodney, a previously unpublished collection of Rodney's essays on race, colonialism, and Marxism. The Disappearance of Yosef Mengele, a novel by Oliver Gouez, a rigorously researched factual novel tracing the angel of death as he flees from international police through South America. Confronting Capitalism, How the World Works and How to Change It by Vivek Chibbern, an analysis of the core dynamics of our economy and politics. And Hegemony Now, How Big Tech and Wall Street Won the World and How We Win It Back by Jeremy Gilbert and Alex Williams, a look at how we came to live in a world dominated by big tech and finance. Become a member today at versobooks.com. All 
All right. I'm now here with Bronco Marchetich, Jacobin staff writer, uh, the author of uh, many recent articles, but we will be talking to him today about uh, a new article he's written on how Democrats are botching the January 6th hearings and why they're not actually doing anything to safeguard democracy despite their claims. Bronco, good to see you. You too. So, like I said, uh, we will be diving into your thoughts on uh, what Democrats are getting wrong about the January 6th hearings. But I wanted to open up by talking about the uh, or talking about the event of January 6th itself, because as you point out in your article, um, I think there's a little bit a little bit of contention on the left about, you know, what went down at the Capitol riots. And, uh, you know, you point out that there is a segment of the left that I think has expressed some cynicism, some cynicism about, you know, January 6th and the subsequent hearings. And I'll just go ahead and out myself as being part of that segment. Um, I, you know, I obviously feel that, you know, democracy is under threat in the U.S. in a lot of ways. But uh, when it comes to the Capitol riots, you know, um, I, I'm not sure that I that I think Democrats should be making such a big spectacle about what happened. Um, and not least because, you know, public opinion polls have indicated that lots of people are ready to move on and the hearings just haven't been getting the traction that I think a lot of Democrats sort of hope they would. Um, so but but that's all to say, just to start off, there there's obviously a kind of impasse right on the left where you have some people who, you know, kind of take the line that I take and then other people who really see the January 6th attack as you know, uh, uh, basically a fascist coup as something that was very serious and, you know, should should be treated as such. Um, how do we move past this impasse? What do you think is the most useful way of understanding what happened on January 6th? Yeah, I mean, I'm of two minds about the event as well. Uh, I was as shocked and horrified as anyone else when I saw it happening on TV. Um, and, you know, I, I assume kind of the worst, uh, especially because of the the wave of uh, reporting that came out afterwards, uh, a lot of it which ended up being wrong. Um, but you know, there was a lot of stuff in there that that was alarming, and some of it wasn't wrong. I mean, the the, the pipe bombs right. that were left uh, outside the uh, Democratic and Re Republican uh, headquarters uh, that has not really been um, uh, that crime hasn't been solved. Uh, so so you know that was that was really serious. Um, but, you know, I mean, uh, over time, I, I watched a lot of the footage of January 6th and, and you know, read a lot of stuff and, and followed uh, a lot of the developments about it. And, and my views kind of started to shift. And I realized, you know, I, I've been resistant to, to go in this direction of calling it an insurrection, you know, in the sense mm -hmm. that this was an attempt to, to um, overthrow the government. I mean, it was an attempt to, I guess, block the transfer of power, but as a, a attempt to actually overthrow the government by force um that doesn't quite quite uh, pan out to me i mean uh, the the best example of this is if you watch the video of uh ashley babbitt being shot um yeah. you know th there's this massive crowd of people who are you know kind of uh standing outside the the locked doors which are barricaded uh some of the protesters start to, to try and bash the windows in to get in ashley babbitt ends up uh, climbing through and then she's shot and immediately the crowd is in complete shock and and, and, uh, and freezes and ultimately they start clearing the way for police to come in and medical people to come in to take her out and everyone kind of just uh, starts to dissipate. Now, you know, most <laughs> armed overthrows of government, if uh, one, they're not stopped by a single gunshot and secondly, uh, they're, they're, um, if there is a gunshot, if one of them is killed, uh, you know, there tends to, to be kind of inflaming of, of anger. So that was one of the things that made me, made me change my mind, you know, and, and other, other uh, similar things. I mean, you know, I think for me, the bottom line is 
look, it, it was a it was an event that could have been so much worse than it was right. because if there had been a concerted effort to to you know uh, bring in weapons and actually try and 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 uh, you know kill or kidnap lawmakers or God knows what else you know beyond just kind of maybe a, a few uh, armed people here and there. Uh, they could have easily come in with the rush of bodies and, and done all manner of stuff and caused all manner of mayhem. So that could have been a lot worse, but that didn't happen. Um, and, and, you know, researchers have, have, uh, who have looked over the, the people who were arrested on the day and, and, and other people, uh, who were involved, you know, they, they concluded that the vast majority of these people, they were not members of right wing militias. They were basically ordinary Trump supporters, um, who had basically been brainwashed by this lie that the election had been stolen. Um, and they saw themselves, you know, whether we think their actions are good or not, they saw themselves as kind of, uh, coming to the aid of American democracy. Now that's completely delusional, obviously. What they would have been doing is unwittingly, um, uh, 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 helping democracy get snuffed out and helping Trump overturn the election. But, you know, these people, they, they watch cable news and, and they, they trusted Trump and that's what they believed. So I think it's, it's a tough one. I think we have yeah. to hold two ideas into account, you know, that, that this event was bad and, and, and dangerous and, and could have been really, really uh, much worse than it was. But also that, that it wasn't, you know, at least the protest itself uh, wasn't quite the kind of um, attempt at, a, at an armed revolution that I guess people have been portraying. Um, that doesn't mean that it couldn't be worse next time. Um, right. And I think that's the that's the the worrying thing. So let's now jump ahead to the January sixth hearings, which uh, you know be, be, began a while ago and have sort of continued to unfold. Um, these hearings have primetime billing. Uh, you know, uh, they're they're this like highly televised event. It's clear that many Democrats are very much hoping that these hearings will kind of call attention to how bad the Republican Party is and thereby give Democrats a boost in the upcoming midterms, which are not looking good for them uh, so far. I've already expressed some of my uh, doubts about that strategy, but I, I, I would like to hear your thoughts. Is this likely to work in the way that Democrats think it will? Yeah, I mean, it, it's an attempt to redo the strategy, uh, I guess, of 2016, to some extent, the strategy of 2020, uh, where if you just uh, hype up how bad the other side is. And, you know, look, I mean, of course... The Republican Party is a profoundly liberal party. It has increasingly gone into the extremes right. over the past, you know, few decades, uh, but particularly over the last 10 years. Um, it, it is a, 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 the Republican Party, as Noam Chomsky says, is, is the most dangerous uh, organization on the planet, not just because of its undemocratic uh, tendencies, but also because of things like its, um, its complete denial of, of climate change and, and other issues. Uh, so it is important to, to find a way to stop this kind of thing from happening again. Um, the, the question is, is uh, reminding people uh, how bad and unscrupulous and, and uh, irresponsible and, and, and how much of a liar Trump is, is that going to do it? Is reminding people that the Republicans are, are, are really bad and, and, you know, you shouldn't vote for them because they're going to do bad things uh, going to do it? I mean, it didn't work in 2016. Um, it, it worked in 2020 because there was a uh, very unique confluence of, of massive crises that uh, made uh, the imperative uh, uh, to get Trump out, you know, a, a much bigger thing. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm skeptical. I mean, if you look at the polling, um, number one, most people don't care about January 6th. Uh, yeah. The Democratic base does. Uh, because it's it's constantly on cable news, um, and and the reason it's on cable news is because 
frankly, because uh, it's 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 a it's an attempt for for ratings for them, but because right. people who watch these channels all the time are. Uh, watching this stuff, or you know, if they're reading the New York Times, uh, the, the, the you know, and, and other liberal papers, they're obsessed with this stuff. They tend to get obsessed as well. Um, so they care about it a lot. Uh, the the actual, say, Republican voters, for instance, uh, don't really care that much about it. I mean, there was a poll in the New York Times uh, a couple of weeks back, which showed that the uh, majority of the people who are intending to vote for Republicans uh, this the, these midterms uh, see the economy as the main thing. You know, it's, yeah. it's unfortunately the Democratic uh, leading voters who who don't view the economy as a priority. They view January sixth and 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 you know gun control and, and abortion as the biggest issues. Um, so you know, I think if if you wanted to move the needle there, you would have to rather than focus on the stuff that already animates Democrats people who are going to vote for Democrats no matter what, you know, you'd look at what is going to uh, move the needle for uh, Republican voters. Um, right. And I think that would be the economy. And look, the Democrats have done hearings where they have, uh, you know, taken corporate profiteers to task and, and highlighted some of these issues, but they, they haven't made a, a kind of prime time issue the same way as they have with January 6th. Um, and, uh, I mean, you know, look, maybe it'll work. Maybe it'll drive a massive turnout of Democratic voters who are uh, angry and not just about January 6th, but, but also Roe v. Wade being gutted. Maybe that will, will end up driving them to the polls. But uh, I, I think that's a bit of a risk. Uh, and I, I just don't think, uh, you know, I don't think independents are, are that concerned about this issue either, to be honest. So the, the other thing is that, you know, the January 6th hearings are ostensibly about, uh, are, are supposed to be kind of like a bipartisan effort to like rescue or restore democracy, right? That's very much how they're being framed by the people who are running the hearings. Um, but you are, you argue in your article that they actually sort of miss or misconstrue like the actual threats that, uh, uh, U.S. democracy is facing today. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Why aren't these hearings actually doing anything to, you know, salvage democracy and or the, you know, fair election process? Well, as I said before, uh, the, most of the hearings are, are focused on reminding us how bad Trump is. Um, yeah. and to a lesser extent, the Republicans. Okay. Uh, that that's fine, but uh, the the threats to American democracy come not just from Trump. I mean, we're basically repeating the same mistake that we made this entire last six years, where where you know the way that the liberal establishment has has chosen to look at Trump's election is that uh, Trump is a unique evil. He's uh, he's the problem with the Republican Party and with American politics. And if we just get rid of Trump, if we just have him out of the picture, uh, all these other problems will disappear, even though they're the same uh, issues that actually led Trump to get elected in the first place. Um, so I, I have advocated looking at some of these uh, structural issues, which may not on the surface seem like they are directly related to January 6th, but I think really are. You know, one of which is the, the corporate domination of news media. The, mm -hmm. This is not how it always was in the United States. Uh, this is partly the product of, of uh, deregulation under the Clinton uh, administration um, and, and other uh, deregulatory efforts that happened uh, earlier under Reagan um, that, that mean that now there's this uh, intense corporate uh, concentration uh, uh, in the media, which means that, you know, you get cable news outlets that are able to um, hold sway over, over large populations and, and get away with saying all kinds of um, untrue and, and misleading things. And it's not just Fox News. It's not just the right. You know, I, I think anyone 
who uh, reads Jacobin is probably well aware that MSNBC and, and CNN engage in their own kind of, uh, uh, you know, whatever you want to say, misinformation um, mm -hmm. as well. So, you know, that's one thing, uh, the, the, the role of money in politics, that, that was a big part of this, you know, the, the, the money that flowed to these Republican lawmakers who were willing to uh, assist Trump in basically blocking the transfer of power and to overturn the election, um, they're getting uh, uh, they were getting a lot of funding from from you know every every moneyed interest that tends to dominate uh, in American politics. I mean, so you, you have to, to to take action on that as well. I think you have to look at things like the infiltration of law enforcement around the country by extreme right wing forces. Um, you know, the, the, the police and other law enforcement were a fairly strong contingent of the people who stormed uh, the Capitol. Um, we know, you know, years before this, uh, that the FBI was looking at white supremacist infiltration of police. Uh, that Nothing has really been done about that. Um, right. You know, I mean, it, it, any rational, you know, sensible uh, uh, society would look at this and say, well, we have to clean house. I mean, whatever you think about the role of the police and, and what the police do in society, um, surely having actual white supremacists and, and neo-Nazis in their ranks is, is, is something that we can all oppose, right? Um, and then finally, the, the one element that I think has been sorely ignored through this whole thing, uh, 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 you know, basically to make the case that, you know, this is all about Trump and, and how bad he is, is why uh, the security was as bad as it was on that mm -hmm. day. I mean, you know, it's, it's a cliche to say at this point, but we all know if it was abortion rights protesters or Black Lives Matter protesters who had gathered outside the Capitol in, in those numbers, they would never have been even allowed to get close enough uh, uh, to the steps to, to be able to, you know, try and charge in and, and overwhelm the police. Uh, we, we, we know that there were frequent intelligence warnings that, you know, this was going to happen, that there was maybe going to be violence. Um, and, and for whatever reason, those intelligence, uh, reports were not passed on. Uh, the, the Capitol police were unprepared. They didn't have the right equipment or they had faulty equipment. They didn't have nearly the numbers they did. I mean, if you look at some of the videos that, that the hearings produced, um, you can see this just massive crowd of, of protesters, you know, charging to, to get to the Capitol and then, you know, like a handful of police standing in their way. Um, anyone who's gone to a protest in D.C., uh, if it, <laughs> when it's not stopped to steal, knows uh, how big the police presence uh, right. is, even even when the protests aren't that big. So that's the big question. Why did this happen? There was a whistleblower um, that came forward last year, I believe, uh, and said, you know, that these two officials in the Capitol Police, they were promoted. Uh, and even though they uh, didn't do anything, they completely failed. They didn't pass on the intelligence about about you know possible violence in the day. They didn't lift a finger to, to help the the police when they were being overwhelmed. Um, and the whistleblower said that they that that the Congress members of Congress basically were not investigating this. That they that they knew that there was a serious flaw with the Capitol Police, uh, and they had basically covered up um, whatever went wrong and didn't want to tell the public uh, the right. truth about what happened. And, and the reason why is, is I think, pretty self-evident because basically if you look at how the hearings have been structured, there's been a big push to, to you know, m 
portray the police and the Secret Service in this very heroic kind of role. And all of that is going to, to, to put the focus on Trump and how bad he is. And I guess to sort of appeal to Republican voters who might uh, sympathize with the police. But the result of that is that we don't know why the security failure happened. And that, I think, is, is the biggest piece of this that is just going completely uninvestigated. So maybe as a final kind of related question, um, what do you think a substantive effort by Democrats to either, you know, shore up or even expand our current democracy could look like? Uh, I, you know, I, I mean, I think that something that we've sort of been getting at is that election denialism, like, obviously is a huge problem, a huge and growing problem. And, you know, we can, there, there are many things that we can do to expand sort of voting rights in the U.S., um, aside from the January 6th stuff, what do you see the Democrat or what do you think the Democrats can be doing? Yeah, I mean, you know, all the stuff that has been discussed over the, the, the past years, you know, yeah. the, the idea of making it just easy to vote, to, to make it, you know, to, to expand mail-in balloting, to, to have a federal holiday for voting mm-hmm. uh, so that people aren't having to, you know, wait, uh, somehow balance going to work while also, you know, doing their, their basic kind of civil uh, a democratic service uh you know you could talk about the i mean this is a bit of a a, a kind of fantasy wish list but of course the, changing the unrepresentative nature of american democracy you know the mm-hmm. way the political system is structured it obviously uh privileges a, a minority over the majority uh for a lot of people this kind of just makes it seem like their vote isn't worth a whole lot um, yeah, I mean, all, all of this stuff. Uh, and I think also uh, the, the, some of the things I, I mentioned before, I mean, I, I think, you know, getting rid of the corporate concentration of media, uh, having some sort of regulation, not so much on the speech, but at least on, 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 the, on the crossover of, of business and, and news reporting, I think that would go a long way, uh, first of all, to restoring trust uh, in, in, in the press, which, of course, is a institution that's pretty essential and critical to, uh, to, to the functioning of democracy. But it would also get rid of some of these um, incentives that exist for, you know, sensationalistic and misleading reporting. Um, yeah. you know, so I, 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 there's a very non-exhaustive list. I'm sure right. I could, uh, uh, with a little more time, you know, uh, give, you, give you dozens more ideas. But yeah, I mean, I think just anything to make it easier for voting and anything that increases the trust and, and transparency uh, uh, for people. You know, I mean, I, I would just add, it's not just the Republicans that engage in, in some of these uh, electoral shenanigans. I mean, yeah. you know, I, th- I think uh, anyone watching this might remember some of the, the stuff that the Democratic Party pulled um, during the Democratic primary when, yeah. uh, you know, Biden had, had all but sewed it up. But uh, it, there was still a chance that things could have gone wrong for, for the establishment candidate. And, and uh, you know, we saw um, basically uh, the party threatening uh, 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 state parties that, you know, if you delay your uh, primaries, we're going to halve the amount of delegates you get and all this kind of stuff. And basically yeah. push for for um, uh, elections to keep happening, even though the pandemic was, you know, at the time uh, raging. Uh, so, you know, it's it's not just the Republican Party. I think we have to also clean house among the uh, the, the other uh, major party in the United States. But yeah, that's that's those are a few ideas, I guess. All right, Bronco Marchatich, again, a staff writer at Jacobin. We will link his latest article below. Bronco, good to see you as always. Yeah, you too. Thanks. All right, I'm now here with Matt Huber. He is an associate professor of geography at Syracuse University and, of course, author of the new book, Climate Change is Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet. Matt, great to see you as always. Thank you for having me. 
So obviously a lot of uh, climate news going on right now. Uh, Let's maybe start with the kind of big national item, which is, of course, that last week uh, Joe Manchin surprisingly reversed course on uh, his prior position on the Democrats' climate and tax package. So we actually now have a climate bill uh, on the table. Mm -hmm. Now, I've been hearing um, quite a lot of sort of enthusiasm and optimism about the package that is on the table. Uh, I want to read a quote from David Wallace Wells of the New York Times. In one of his recent columns, he wrote, this bill is a compromise, obviously, and outwardly. It is also a historic achievement for the climate left and a tribute to both its moral fervor and its political realism. Uh, So I want to get your thoughts on that statement. And maybe (laughs) by way of getting to that, um, first talk about what exactly is in this climate bill. And then as a follow-up and to also address David Waswell's statement, um, how exactly does it measure up to what the climate left, aka supporters of a Green New Deal, set out to, to achieve originally? I think if you want to sum up what's in the climate bill, it's $369 billion. And people often claim an investment, which sounds like if you're a Green New Deal person, you hear the word investment and you think that's great. Um, but if you could sum up what that $369 billion is, it's basically two words, tax credits. Mm. <laughs> and it's a variety of tax credits. Um, some are meant to basically incentivize everyday people to buy electric vehicles or heat pumps for their homes. But the main one that I think climate activists are most excited about are the tax credits that are going <clears> to <throat> facilitate renewable energy investment. And so those are going to they're going to go to renewable energy developers who are building new wind farms and solar projects and and even homeowners that put these things on their homes. But particularly for the large scale utility scale wind and solar developments, those tax credits actually get sort of um, sold off to another set of extremely um, powerful and wealthy investors, which actually are a specialized part of the investment world, which are called tax equity investors. And these are extremely rich, wealthy people who have lots of money that they want to shield from taxes. So they actually are the most eager to gobble up tax credits wherever they may be. Mm -hmm. And so they are extremely excited to... um, Uh, basically partner with these renewable energy capitalists to get access to these tax credits and then shield. And essentially, renewable energy becomes a a large-scale tax shelter for the richest people you can imagine. There's a famous quote um, from Warren Buffett, (laughs) one of the richest men alive, who said, the only reason to build wind farms is to get the tax credits, the only reason to do it. Um, So... There's that going on. I will say the the new legislation, and we'll see if this survives, has a cool new provision that has something called direct pay to um, public utilities and other non-private entities can take can get advantage of these tax credits. Before, on like literally, the tax credits were unavailable to something like the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, or the ne- Nebraska Public Power District. These massive public power entities couldn't couldn't get these tax credits because they're only going to the private sector. Mm -hmm. So this direct pay might make it possible for at least some public utilities to start to take advantage of these and build out clean energy on that basis. But even if that happens, I think they're just simply going to be competing in a market that's dominated by these private renewable energy developers and these 
hugely wealthy tax equity investors. So, so again, you can call that $369 billion investment, but it's not the type of investment that us Green New Deal people had in mind, which was, of course, like public investment where the state itself is taking on these projects, employing people in these kind of public goods, public works projects, and actually taking control over production of electricity and of energy in, in a kind of, you know, if we believe climate change is an emergency, we are building out clean energy in this kind of emergency type um, conditions. And, um, you know, that there's there's a lot of proposals that were on the table in 2020, namely from Bernie Sanders, to basically harness the Tennessee Valley Authority and these other federally owned energy marketing agencies. They're called federal power marketing agencies to be the agents of investment, to be the, and, and that is a fundamentally different type of vision where uh, public ownership and the state are taking control over this energy transition because of the crisis we're facing and trying to guide it in ways that prioritize not just profit and tax shelters for the rich, but mm-hmm. decarbonization and actually doing what needs to be done to solve the climate crisis. And not to mention when you have that kind of public control you can have other goals and criteria like making sure workers are paid well and making sure they're union jobs. And, and, um, you know, if we were to go into a recession, making it a kind of job program and this kind of stuff. So that, and, and that's of course, you know, what the original new deal was, was much more about the state and the public sector taking control over the crisis, directly controlling investment and um, and and solving a lot of these crises through that that kind of public goods approach. I'm wondering, Ben, though, do you think that this climate bill, even with its shortcomings, um, sort of puts us one step closer to a Green New Deal or at least opens the door to kind of revive that fight? Um, Because maybe a a kind of similar analogy is, you know, we are not anywhere close to achieving Medicare for all on a national level, obviously. Now, Mm -hmm. at the same time, I think any time a state takes a Medicaid expansion, uh, that's a great thing. And I think Mm -hmm. in a way it does kind of nudge us toward that. Uh, So do you see something similar? happening here? Or or do you feel, um, and, and I want to get into your thoughts on kind of the prospects for a Green New Deal more mm-hmm. broadly in a bit, uh, but just just on a kind of limited level, do you, do you see this bill as sort of moving things forward at all? So, I mean, I think it's pretty clear you can see it, it's moving things forward on a, a decarbonization mm-hmm. basis. Um, now, many people have claimed this it's very sketchy. There's these these armies of modelers that come out and they look at the legislation, they model the kinds of emission reductions um, that you're going to see with these policies. And the, and the number of people are thrown around is 40% reductions of emissions over tw- 2005 levels, which sounds pretty good. But um, when you look at the fine print, you see something like without doing anything at all, we're on track for about 25 to 31% reductions. <laughs> I hope I have those numbers right. I'm doing it a bit off memory. And so the the model range is like we're shooting from 25 to 30% to 30 to 41% or something like that. And so it's it's when you add it all up, it's about a 7 to 9% increase, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is marginal at best. Um, but if we, regardless of how we get there, I mean, obviously, if we do reduce our emissions by 40 percent, 
by uh, 2030, which is eight years from now, mm-hmm. it would be pretty good. And Biden's pledge was only 50%. So, so that would be good. Um, but as far as like, if it gets us any closer to a Green New Deal, I would argue not really. Um, mm-hmm. Unless this direct pay thing really like blows up into this huge public power bonanza of, of clean energy development, which I, I actually wouldn't expect to happen. To me, you know, all these tax credits do is they expand and extend what already existed prior to, um, you know, these have their roots. Um, there's a great scholar of this tax credit uh, renewable policy called Sarah Knuth, who wrote an article tracing this all the way back to the 1970s. And really, these these took off in the Obama years. Um and and so this legislation just extends them another 10 years and and basically expands them in all these ways. But it doesn't change. You know, I think those of us excited about a Green New Deal are fundamentally trying to change, as Marxists would say, the social relations of production and the, and the different relationships of investment and ownership that uh, are holding us back in this climate crisis. And that's not at all happening. It's just sort of a continuation of the already existing um uh, you know, tax, basically trying to do climate change through the tax code, this very neoliberal type of, you know, trying to incentivize the private sector to solve it for us, which is, right. you know, not really what we want. And I haven't even mentioned, I should have mentioned much earlier, that this bill has all sorts of things in it that help uh, expand fossil fuel production and fossil fuel expansion to help appease Mansion, which is fair enough to get it across the finish line. But so there's a lot of things in the bill that are just making things worse. Some green groups are even opposing it for that reason. Hmm. So it's a real mixed bag. But I would, I, I don't think it does get us much closer to a green new deal. It's more, it's just kind of more of the same, unfortunately. Right. Um, so, so then let's let's dive into the fate of the Green New Deal. Um, I should mention, you know, viewers probably know um, you you've gone on record as uh, expressing, let's say, pessimism about the uh, you know prospects of reviving or enacting a Green New Deal in the next couple of years. Um, there are obviously you know good reasons why you, why you feel that way. So, you know, I should say Joe Manchin has not been the only thing standing in the way of more transformative climate action. Easy as it is to kind of point the finger at him. Uh, We all know Mm -hmm. that the fight for a Green New Deal was always an uphill battle from the beginning. Um, But but how and where do you feel like it really started to lose traction? So there's a lot of kind of turning points, I think, that you can identify. Um, The first is, uh, you know, if Biden, first of all, we should, I mean, Biden disavowed the Green New Deal in the general election campaign. (laughs) So we shouldn't be surprised by this. But, you know. He came into office with all these big rhetorical things about how he's going to take a whole of government approach to climate crisis. And he was going to do He made all these pledges. He had this very ambitious climate plan. But then when he had all the political momentum in the world in early, you know, back in uh, January through March of two, uh, 2021, and everyone was heralding him as the new FDR and <laughs> neoliberalism's over and we have this new kind of Keynesian, big spending, uh, uh, muscular form of state uh, industrial policy. Um, he basically had all the political uh, capital he needed to pass this huge stimulus, stimulus package right? Which was, uh, I forget, I think $1.6 trillion. And 
to me, if you really wanted to be like to make climate at the center of what he's doing, he should have put some climate stuff in that. And because, particularly because that package really was about it was called the American Rescue Plan. It was sending checks to people. It was really directly, you know, the child tax credit, all these kind of well, expansion of the welfare state, things that were improving people's lives, which is what the Green New Deal was really trying to say. We need to start pairing like material life improvements with under the banner of climate action. So mm-hmm. he basically punted on on climate in that package and said, we're going to do climate later in this infrastructure thing. And then, you know, uh, 18 months later, here we are or whatever. And and so to me, that was a missed opportunity. But the biggest, I think some of the actually should have, should have started earlier. Some of the biggest hinge points, if you will, were... Um, when it be, when Bernie lost and when it became clear that Biden was the candidate, he did a, a very um, sort of uh, astute thing on his part, which is he set up these unity task forces to bring the party together before the general election in the summer of 2020. Right. And one was called the Climate Unity Task, task Force. And it brought together, uh, you know, very centrist um Democrats like John Kerry and Connor Lamb from Pennsylvania, but also it brought AOC and it brought um, uh, the the leader of the Sunrise Movement, um, and and they these people came together and basically had Zoom calls in summer of 2020 and came together with a big ambitious climate plan that became Biden's climate plan, two trillion dollars, and the Sunrise Movement. Um, really saw it as this huge victory that they pushed Biden to kind of have this ambitious plan. Um, but to me, as uh, I quote um, Jane McAlevey, mm-hmm. that they, they she has this great line in The Nation where too often trade union bureaucrats confuse access for power. And so the, the Sunrise Movement, which let's be clear, was the kind of force that really pushed the Green New Deal into the national attention. Mm-hmm. They got a ton of access with the Biden administration. And and uh, and in fact, recently there's a piece in the New Republic that shows over the last year or two they've been hanging out a lot with John Podesta, hmm. <laughs> who is like the architect of Hillary's catastrophic 2016 campaign, and hmm. and and apparently they've been taking Podesta's advice, and they're they're like having dinner together with Podesta, and it's like ay ay ay, it couldn't be more of a symbol of failure than John Podesta. And, and so they have kind of started, they've shifted, uh, you know, they had started by doing sit-ins and calling for a Green New Deal in Pelosi's office to like doing a very inside game where they now have all the access. But again, as McAlevey would say, that is that really power? And by winning, is winning really getting Biden to announce an ambitious plan or is winning actually winning a Green New Deal, which, like we were saying earlier, is not happening. Mm-hmm. And so um, to me, that confusion of access for power led to them to kind of like confuse all these symbolic victories about plans and pledges with actual decarbonization, actual wins. And, and to me, I think Biden actually pretty effectively neutralized a lot of the climate movement um, and, uh, and so forth. There's a lot more to say, but I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I I do want to stay on that for a minute because you know, uh, as as you just alluded to, there are obviously a number of kind of structural and political uh, obstacles that always stood in the way of you know uh, enacting a green new deal. Um, but 
I, I, I do want to ask you about where you see the climate left maybe taking a wrong turn. Um, I know that you, you know, recently pointed out that after 2020, you kind of viewed the climate movement as um, sort of dissolving into liberalism or, you know, confusing access for power on one hand, uh, and then what you call ultra leftism on the mm-hmm. other. Uh, so, so maybe talk a little bit more about what, what those two tendencies looked like and why this split sort of occurred post-2020. Yeah, so I, I cribbed from a very popular pam- pamphlet, in, in, particularly in DSA circles, by Peter Camejo from 1970. Yes. And it's called Liberalism, Ultra Leftism, and Mass Action. And so there's the three kind of ways, and he, of course, argues for mass action. What I try to suggest is that the Green New Deal really started as a very mass action kind of program. You know, it was about a job guarantee. And it actually, the original AOC resolution did have Medicare for all in it. Mm-hmm. So it was really grounding and centering like universal public goods and, and kind of trying to build a popular mass climate politics. Um, what I argue is once Bernie lost <laughs> and once Biden kind of neutralizes things, the, the climate movement kind of splintered into these two less attractive uh, <laughs> tendencies on the left, which are the liberals who became, OK, Biden's now in power. So we're going to do everything to kind of lobby Biden to get like effective climate policy in place. And so you had a lot of what I'd call climate liberals sort of really just in the NGOs and in academia, just really pushing Biden to do the best job in, in crafting the smartest uh, policy. Um, a very kind of Elizabeth Warren, kind of like trying to really craft the, the smartest plan. Mm-hmm. And to me, it was a replay of 2009, where um, Obama comes into power and you get all these policy wonks, liberals who say, obviously, the smart thing to do is carbon carbon pricing. And the, and the smartest thing we can do is like use markets to solve this. So we're going to push through this um, cap and trade policy, which is incredibly complicated. And, and analysts showed at the time that Obama administration made no attempt to kind of like appeal to the, the people or the masses to say, like, do you want cap and trade? Is that something that interests you or is popular? And, and of course, that policy failed. It got villainized by the right. They called it cap and tax. So this time around in 2021, the climate liberals found a new policy that they loved. It was something called the Clean Electricity Performance Program. And it was this very wonky um, regulatory fix that was going to force utilities to to basically move towards renewables and other clean energy fast. Um, There's no clear, visible material gain to this policy. In fact, some analysts um, showed that it would make electricity cost more in some regions. So, But but it, it was like when you ran these models, it, it worked and it was very elegant policy-wise. So all the liberals put all their energy into this one little technocratic policy fix. And then, of course, last uh, fall, Manchin just said, I don't want that in there. (laughs) And it was just gone. And there was no, again, just like 2009, there was no attempt to harness uh, a policy that would be popular or appeal to the working class or anything. So that's like the liberals lost the Green New Deal story entirely. And then the ultra left approach, I argue, was to go. Um, the progressives got much more focused, less on mass universal goods, and more on kind of this NGO language of of making sure the the disadvantaged communities are getting most of the investments in climate change. Mm-hmm. So one of the big so called wins that the Sunrise Movement claimed to get out of these unity task force is that Biden pledged to 
put 40% of his climate investment into um, frontline, what are now called environmental justice communities. And he's actually followed through on that. But the problem is, as they're finding out in the EPA, they've, 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 they've concocted something called the environmental justice screening tool. And it's this means testing machine algorithm that tries to determine which zip codes are disadvantaged and which aren't. And, 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 and some are claiming that they're not actually putting racism in there enough. And like, mm. and some, some, some zip codes are too advantaged or less. And it's just a means testing nightmare. And it's, again, this is this kind of ultra left focus on um, really morally centering marginalized communities and lifting them up and lifting their voices, which, you know, I think these are extremely impoverished and, 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 um, oppressed communities and that morally makes a lot of sense but it but it again shifted completely away from this this mass action approach of the green new deal that was really originally about universal uh public goods that everyone could enjoy like a job guarantee or medicare for all and so when you get the climate movement splintering on this liberal and ultra left um lines that's you can pretty much guarantee you're you're in trouble because that's where um, socialists have found in history you're not going to win without these kind of mass action approach or mass demands, popular demands. So. so why do you think the kind of mass action framework or focus fell away uh, after 2020? Well, I think I've said this maybe before with you, Jen, <laughs> is that to, to win this kind of vision, you actually start, you have to start to deliver the mm-hmm. um, material goods on a mass scale where people can start on a people can start to see in their lives real visible gains that they interpret somehow as climate action <laughs> and 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 as long as that as long as the green new deal is just this rhetorical vision you know resolution in, in that AOC puts in the congress that's not happening so as long as it's just the symbolic football that you know the right villainizes and AOC says is good it, it's not going to really grip the masses right to grip the masses you actually have to deliver you actually have to have results so it really does bring up that uh, age-old problem that we face as socialists that without an organized working class it's actually starting to convince the masses that this movement uh, for socialism and the working class actually will get results and will win things for you we're just like not able to gain that kind of mass traction. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say there are smaller scale examples of attempts to try to put into practice this Green New Deal approach. And in the, in the, um, I'm totally blanking on her name, but the newly elected um, mayor of Boston mm-hmm. actually put in a policy of uh, free public transit on particular mm-hmm. lines in working class neighborhoods. And, you know, like free public transit, people love it. Actually, it's like a hugely popular, it's led to more public transit usage. And it's not like straining the system as people would warn. And so like, that's a small scale example of, um, of, of trying to put that Green New Deal thing into practice. But unfortunately, you're going to hear a lot now that, um, you know, we, we don't have a lot of capacity to do big things at the federal level because of uh, you know, we're not even sure this bill is going to pass. Let's be clear. <laughs> but right. but um, even if it does pass, everyone agrees it's not enough. Right. right. So people are going to say we need to go to the state and local levels. And that's great and everything. But the cool thing about the Green New Deal is it really recognized something s- specific about American political economy, which is 
states and localities are extremely constrained. Um, they must legally balance their budgets. They have strict rules about uh, uh, bonds and debt financing. And so there's not a lot of capacity for big public investment at the state and local level. At the federal level, it's another story. Like they have this, you know, let's be clear, this kind of imperial role of the dollar and the fact that the U.S. government can kind of print as much as it wants. And it has this, as we've seen, although there's, you know, now with inflation, people are pushing back. I mean, there's just this almost unending fiscal ability to um, spend money in the in the face of the coronavirus. That doesn't exist at state and local levels. So if we really want a Green New Deal that that can actually decarbonize at the scale um, that we need, it's going to have to come at the federal level. Yeah. And and we're just we just don't have the balance of forces uh, to the far enough to the left to really be there right now. So. Well, on the subject of uh, state level action, uh, that that brings up another recent article that you recently co-authored, which appears in The Intercept. Uh, In this article, you sort of look at a very ambitious climate bill that uh, was sent to the New York State Legislature. It's called the Build Public Renewables Act. And unfortunately, um, it recently died in the in the legislature, uh, despite, of course, a big push from, you know, uh, sort of left and progressive climate groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, I, I encourage everybody to check out that article and we'll link that below. Um, and, but I, I just want to get your thoughts on um, what happened, right? Because I think that there are some interesting parallels between what happened in New York and what's kind of continuing to happen at the federal level. So maybe just to begin, what was in this climate bill uh, that, that stalled in the New York state legislature and why mm-hmm. did it fail at the last minute despite, you know, heavy, heavy support from what we might call the climate left? <clears throat> so the bill itself, I would say, is really a brilliant idea, which is to take there, there's a the largest public utility at the state level in the country is in New York State. It's called the New York Power Authority. It was set up by our, our friend uh, FDR when he was governor of New York State. And um, it really, you know, got him into the elect- public power electricity game uh, right before he became president and, and really inspired him to do that thing at the national level in much more ambitious ways. Um, so the bill would empower what's called NIPA or the New York Power Authority to build um, renewable energy all across the state. Um, now, there, there's a lot of, you know, the, the advocates will claim that the bill um, had the vote. So it passed the Senate mm-hmm. uh, in New York, and then it, they will claim it had the votes to pass in the Assembly. The Speaker of the House, um, Carl Heasty, uh uh, says that's not true, but it's contested. So right. they claim they've they've counted the votes and they have, I think they need something like 75 and they have like 83. So, but for whatever reason, Carl did not bring it to vote. So it just died with the legislative session. And they're pushing very strongly now for the legislature to do a special session this week to pass it um, on the banner of climate emergency. So there's... Um, a lot of a lot of issues that we bring up with it. Um, one is we we argue that a lot of the activism you can actually link it to this this critique of ultra leftism that I was talking about earlier. It's really a lot of the activism around it really centers this moral discourse of um, there's a slogan for the the bill called build or burn. <laughs> and if we don't build these renewables, we're all going to burn. And there's a lot of like really 
scary rhetoric about like the climate crisis killing us all. But what ultimately what public power is about, we argue, is transforming an industrial production system that's extremely complicated and and um, and it involves a lot of workers that run this complex electrical system that not only involves generation plants and the generation of electricity, but huge transmission lines. And then those connect with these distribution systems and substations. It's an incredibly complex industrial production system. And we argue that if we're socialists, we really have to build a coalition that puts the workers in that system at the core of the coalition. And, and therefore, and, and we cite, uh, you've talked on this program with Paul Prescott and Lee Phillips about examples in Illinois and Maine and um, Rhode Island recently that have really centered unions, industrial unions, in the c- construction of climate policy that really um, puts them at the, at the helm of policy construction and advocacy. That is not how this public power coalition constructed itself. It it took what I call, or what we call, the NGO path. <laughs> so they, they really put together a coalition that, we should be clear, first and foremost, is somewhat heroically made up of the volunteer labor of DSA chapters, including, I got to be clear, I organized on this coalition for uh, nearly a couple years. So it's basically DSA chapters all across the state. But the core um, organizations in the coalition are energy are, are NGOs in the green sector. So uh, ones like Alliance for the Green Economy, mm-hmm. um, uh, the Energy Democracy Alliance, uh, We Act for Environmental Justice, which just got a cool $6 million mm-hmm. from the uh, Bezos Earth Fund, I think it's called. <laughs> um, so these are the core organizations driving the coalition that wrote the legislation and that are driving this movement. Mm-hmm. The problem is this NGO coalition has had a long history of butting heads with the unions in the electric sector and just in the industrial unions more broadly. And so the, the legislation got wrote in a way that, you know, we want NIPA to build clean energy, but only renewable energy. So if you want to... Uh, 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 kind of parallel that ultra leftism that in the climate movement, there's this ultra left demand for 100% renewable energy, which is actually really difficult to achieve. And any energy expert and analyst would tell you that's really hard to do. Um, and 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 but this legislation only empowers NIPA to build renewable energy like solar and wind, and um, it excludes the development of other types of clean energy like nuclear. And all these NGOs were part and parcel of a movement to close down Indian Point, which has led to an increase in emissions in New York State. And all these NGOs are very hostile to any kind of other technologies that aren't windmills and solar panels. And so an original version of the legislation even excluded something called green hydrogen, which is using renewable energy or clean energy to make Hydrogen, which can be used as storage when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. And, and because it's a very industrial process, I think they, they said we're not going to do that either. Um, and so it's this extremely narrow, rigid, technical uh, vision of solar and wind or nothing else. And so, of course, that is going to alienate the unions who always are going to say we need a mix of technologies. We need things like 
um, nuclear. We need things like even carbon capture on something like a natural gas plant would sound horrific to any environmentalists. But unions support this because they know natural gas plants are big centers of, of good union paying jobs. And, and, and if we can find technical ways to keep those jobs and to keep those um, centralized power plants in, in business, that makes sense from a union perspective. And they do want to develop uh, other advanced things like geothermal or different, different kind of new nuclear technologies. And so um, essentially uh, the, the coalition, um, it, like I said, it took the NGO path from the start and therefore sort of set up a movement that was going to inherently alienate itself from the unions. And so lo and behold, there was a public hearing on it last week, which actually happened after we wrote our article. Hmm. And, and lo and behold, they had three union speakers, all three of them opposed it. (laughs) And they, and the, and, and they argued, um, you know, for one, they argued that NIPA is a horrible bargainer for workers. And they know because they actually have members that know. And so like they just brought up very basic things that they would object to in this legislation um, that really could could have been useful at the time the legislation was was actually written. And so um, and so there's it's very clear there's this very big disconnect happening yeah. between um, the unions who do the work in the system and understand it to a much higher degree. And then this kind of like um, climate activist sort of build or burn kind of morality play that that, you know, I think if we're socialists, we, we have to lean more towards the other thing. If I could say one more thing, it's very clear also that the people that wrote the legislation don't have a very clear understanding um, of how how our deregulated market system works in New York state and how difficult it would be for NIPA to actually compete with private renewable producers. And um, there's a whole lot of complicated reasons I can get to as to why. But the point is that, like, not only do they ignore unions, they kind of ignore a kind of larger industrial expertise about how these systems work, mm-hmm. how the markets work and how you could effectively intervene in them to decarbonize the the, the grid. And so <clears throat> there's a real. Uh, so we argue that a winning coalition would really center unions, but also kind of more even wonky industrial engineers and electricity market <laughs> experts who actually understand these systems. Because I think that's a very basic thing Marxists need to, to say that if we want to transform the relations of production, we better understand those production systems really well, because that's the basis to, to really changing them and transforming them. Well, so, you know, on the subject of a possible winning coalition, um, I want to wrap up with a question that uh, kind of, I think, pulls together some of the things you've been hinting at throughout this entire conversation. And my question for you is, do you see prospects for reviving a green jobs program at the national level in the near future? Uh, What would it take for something like that to happen? Well, for one, (laughs) not to be a a real doomsayer, but... I think a lot of people are talking about a recession that's going to happen yeah. or is happening. And if that were to happen, I think um, the impetus for a green jobs program will be huge. Uh, one of the unfortunate things about the whole Green New Deal cycle, if you will, is that the, the architects of the idea really thought that 
we're going to come up with this idea and it's going to shape the debate. But the moment of opportunity to implement a Green New Deal will be exactly like when the, the original New Deal was put into place, when you have a massive crisis of capitalism. And they thought that the coronavirus recession was that. Right. But that was a, this weird shutdown that, you know, shut down the economy in this very non-typical way. And then as we've seen, once they opened up the economy, we've had booming economic uh, growth, uh, you know, coming back and then huge job uh, growth and job openings, a tight labor market. Mm-hmm. Um although there's still been overall declining labor participation since the COVID crisis. But so the, basically the COVID crisis was not like the Great Depression where you can have FDR come in and do a, this like jobs program that, you know, is like a, a Green New Deal. It wasn't that. Um, so possibly we could have a, a severe recession in the next couple of years and that would that would actually be the, the type of crisis and conditions that the Green New Dealers were hoping would exist a little earlier, I think. And if that happens and, say, Biden realizes he's um, far too old and uh, decrepit to run in 2024, uh, and then you get this kind of 2024 um, uh, opening of, of different visions of what our politics can be, then possibly... Uh, something like a green jobs program, um, which, you know, the Sunrise people were were um, envisioning under the Civilian Climate um, Corps, Civilian Conservation Corps model. But I think we need to think even bigger than that because it's going to take a lot more than that to kind of decarbonize our economy. Um, but it's, it's kind of a depressing thing to think. It's going to take kind of like economic uh, recession or even depression to kind of bring this back on the table. But I actually think that's the case. All right. Matt Huber, again, is the author of Climate Change as Class War, and we are linking his recent articles below. Matt, uh, thank you. Good to see you as always. Thank you so much, Jen. (laughs) 